I once knew a couple who exhibited selfless commitment to each other like I have never seen before. She had been battling cancer for a few years, and she was in and out of the hospital, sometimes not knowing if she'd ever come out. One thing that stuck out to me more than anything was how her husband had fully devoted himself to be by her side every step of the way. There was almost never a time when I would go to the hospital to visit when he wasn't there right by her side. He even gave up his career and dreams in order to be by his wife's side through her battle with cancer. After several years of battling cancer, she did pass away. And I will never forget the selfless commitment that he showed to his wife. You know, here we've been going the last couple of weeks through our series, Marriage in the 21st Century, because we believe that there is no relationship more important than the relationship between a man and his wife. And we also understand that Satan is attacking marriages today, that today in the United States and really in Western culture, across the board, only about 50% of all marriages make it. In other words, only about 50% of marriages do not end in divorce. And that's a very sad thing. And as we see our children struggling, as we see our society struggling, as we see our world in shambles, many times we can go back to the fact that the basic unit of our society, which is marriage, has broken down. Therefore, our society has broken down. So this series on marriage is what I'm praying that God will be able to reveal to each one of us about what He wants for our marriages so that our marriages don't end in divorce, so that our marriages are everything that God has called them to be, so that our marriages will reflect the glory of God and so that we can have joy in our marriages, not so it can just be a day-to-day march, but so that it can be joyous and liberating and a, a relationship that brings about freedom and love. So today, as we begin our third message in our series, Marriage in the 21st Century, I've titled today's sermon, A Selfless Commitment. Marriage is a selfless commitment. So as we look at the passage, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So our first two messages were out of the book of Genesis as we looked at the foundation, as we looked at the curse and the struggle that Adam and Eve had because of sin. But today we're going to go into the New Testament, and we're going to see what the Apostle Paul taught the Corinthian church about how their marriages should look. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, and another has that. Then let's skip on down to verse 10. We'll read verses 10 through 16. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. 
but I, not the Lord, say the rest. If any brother has an unbelieving wife, and she is not willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the scripture passage today as it pertains to marriage. And Lord, we know that you have this in scripture for us today, that this uh, message that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means that it is your very own words as we read them from this page. God, we know that the scripture teaches us that your words do not return void. So as we look at this and think about this and meditate on your word, I pray, God, that you would move mightily in our marriages. God, that selfishness would leave our marriages and selflessness would enter our marriages. God, we need to be a people who love others before ourselves, and it must start in our marriage. So God, convict us today. Give us strength to repent of our sins. And Lord, I pray that you would draw the marriages closer together in you and closer to you together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this selfless commitment, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop to this passage, this letter that Paul had wrote to the church at Corinth. If you've been at Pole Creek for any uh, number of months or even at the past year, you know that we have actually preached here recently, uh, last year, a sermon through the book of 2 Corinthians, and then the year before that, through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're quite knowledgeable about this book as a congregation. So we've already been through this once here recently. But in, in the context of the church in Corinth, there was a lot going on. And when it pertains to marriage, we find that under Roman law, which the Roman Empire was overseeing the city of Corinth at the time, there were really four types of legal marriage in that society, in that culture. The first one is slave marriages, those who were owned by other people. Um, some call that tent companionship. And basically what that was is, is that was marriages that were allowed to take place between slaves their owners had to sign off on the marriages, and the marriages could only last as long as the owners saw fit for them to last. Sometimes the owners would bring in other partners. Sometimes the owners would sell off slaves and that their marriage would break up or they would be separated. So it's a pretty sad situation there in Corinth when it comes to slaves being married. Another marriage that was legal there in the Roman Empire was common law marriage. This is when a man and a woman live together for a year. So basically when they live together for a year, they become legally married. A third type was when a father would sell his daughter to a prospective husband. So, you know, there would be money changing of hands and a father would actually sell his daughter. And the fourth was a more elevated um, type of marriage for more of the nobility class in that city. This marriage was more like probably the marriages that we see today between Christians with the, the big ceremonies, the involvement of the families, uh, the minister present and all, and all the other traditions that we celebrate there in Christian marriage. So, so there was a lot of different ideas and understandings of marriage there in the city of Corinth. And as you had this New Testament church that was planted there and you had all these new Christians who had just come to faith, see, they were still living in a society that held some really, really perverted views of marriage and really perverted views of sexual relationships and relationships between men and women. So, so Paul was having to address these concerns here in the letter of Corinth to Corinth, but also we're going to find that we are not so unlike this group of folks, that we live in a pagan world today. Yes, we live in the United States of America. Yes, the United States of America at one time looked like a Christian nation, but we're not there anymore. 
And to find that out, all you got to do is walk down to the streets of downtown Asheville um, for just 50 yards, and you're going to find out very quickly that we live in a pagan society. So as we have all this going around us, we have to understand that God has insulated us in his word in a way that we can still hold to true marriage, even in a wicked and a vile world, even in a world that no longer honors the marriage between one man and one woman in a lifetime covenant relationship. So today, I want us to go through these verses, and I want us to see three different aspects of the marriage relationship. Three different aspects that are going to point back to that selfless commitment that I mentioned at first. So the first aspect of the relationship that I want us to see, and this is a two, two-fold point, is that selfless, it's the selfless relationship in the physical and the emotional aspects. So in the physical and the emotional aspects, marriage, when done God's way, is a selfless commitment. And we find this in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7 that we just read. Let me read a few of those again for us, beginning in verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because of sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. See, here Paul begins by that it's not good for a man uh, to use a woman for sex. Right here what he's saying is, is that when you get married, if your primary goal is so that you can have sex with this individual, that is the wrong reason. Your marriage is not going to last. You are building your marriage on the wrong foundation. And here Paul addresses that right off the bat. And see, these Christians in Corinth were grappling with things like, how do I know that I'm right with God? How do I, um, how do I really exercise my, my God-given desire for sex in a godly way? How do I have a relationship that glorifies God, but that also allows me not to fall into sin? And there may have been that temptation for someone just to kind of lackadaisically get married, but not really understand the full depth of what marriage is. So Paul is saying that there is great temptation in the sexual desires. If you look at verse 2, what did he say there? But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Here we see that though that should not be the reason that you get married, that sex is only okay in God's eyes when enjoyed in the bounds of marriage. He's saying that, yes, that should not be the reason, but one of the benefits of marriage is so that you can enjoy the God-given gift of sex without sinning. And, and he understood that. See, sexual temptation is something that is running rampant in our society. I mean, if you think about it, you can't watch a commercial. I mean, I didn't even watch the Super Bowl this year. I'll just be honest with you. I had no desire to. I didn't even watch one play of the game. But I did, after the fact, see some clips of the halftime show. And as always, sex is front and center. You know, they want to make sure that these women are exploited, that, that they're trying to appeal to the eyes of mankind. They're trying to get people to buy products by exploiting these folks, by paying people to, to act and to do all these things on commercials just so they can make a buck. And in reality, it's, it's that sexual temptation that reigns in our world. And if we do not understand sex and how God made it to be, then we're going to fall into those perverted ways of trying to fulfill God-given desires. Remember, the only relationship that God has given us whereby sex and the, and the procreation of children 
uh, is acceptable is the marriage relationship and marriage being between one man and one woman. So the passage is clear about the sexual relationship in marriage and how important it is. See, marriage isn't all about sex, but you can't talk about uh, marriage without talking about sex because it's that important of an aspect of marriage. If you look in verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Listen to this in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except when you agree, agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here we have the scriptures, the, the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures telling husbands and wives in this selfless commitment, this relationship called marriage, your body is no longer your own, men. Women, your body is no longer your own. The Bible is telling us here not to withhold ourselves from each other, except for a short time, that we might devote ourselves to prayer. But then what does it say? Once that short time is over, come back quickly together again so that Satan does not tempt you. How many of our marriages have gotten off to such a rocky start because the man and the woman don't truly understand the importance of sex in the marriage? See, the men don't understand the woman's view of sex and the woman doesn't understand the man's view of sex. The sexual relationship in marriage, you need to listen to this, isn't just a privilege or a pleasure, but it is a responsibility. Did you hear the words that Paul used in verse 3? A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. That doesn't sound like a recommendation. It says it's a marital duty. It's a marital duty to... Uh, satisfy each other physically in the marriage relationship. It is a responsibility. And men, if you're not satisfying your wife in that way, then there's a possible chance that she might start wondering. And there's a possibility that it may open her to temptation for others. Women, if you're not satisfying your, your husband physically, then there is a more of a likely chance that he may start to wonder himself and try to fulfill that desire in other ways. See, we can't control everything our spouse does, but there are things that we can do in this selfless commitment that will position our spouses to do their very best in this world. And I don't ever want to be a stumbling block for my wife. I don't ever want to because I don't want to do something, because I don't feel like doing something, or whatever it may be. I don't want to get in her way and cause her to stumble. And she's the same way with me. And see, that's where that selfless commitment comes in, that I am thinking of my wife first. She is thinking of me first before ourselves. You know, last week in the sermon, I, I said that, you know, what, the way we should wake up every morning, the first thought on our mind should be, how can we make our spouse's day better? Now, that may be something very small or that may be something quite large, but that needs to be our goal every single day. And I'll be the first to admit that I fail in that, that I fail in that a lot more than I like to say. And these messages have been very, very convicting to me, you know, because it's one thing that a preacher, you know, puts a sermon together. And a lot of people think, well, if the preacher's preaching it, that must mean that he's got all this figured out. No, God preaches this to me first and he works on me. 
So as I'm preaching it to you, I'm under conviction as well. But as we come together and understand our fallen nature and understand what marriage is meant to be, we can then, in a humble way, become more selfless to our spouses so that we do not present stumbling blocks for them. Again, this is a responsibility, and the Word of God teaches us that. Also, we see that this marriage, this selfless commitment, has got to be permanent. It is a permanent relationship. Marriage was never meant to be temporary other than by means of death. That's the only true way that a marriage should end. We know that there are some concessions in the Bible, some acceptable circumstances where divorce can happen, maybe in, in an instance of adultery or in desertion. But ultimately, marriage was intended to be a lifetime relationship. In the second part of verse 5, Let's read that. It says, Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It is not good for a man or woman to be separate for long in marriage. It is not good for a husband and a wife to abstain from that sexual relationship for a long period of time. It will harm your marriage and it will hurt your marriage. And I understand that we may be in some mixed company here, so I'm not going to get too deep into this. But I want to encourage you to enjoy sex with your spouse as much as possible. Because I promise you, there is something about that God-given gift that will enhance your marriage. It will enhance your marriage. So as we're thinking through this, and we're thinking about this physical relationship, I want us to consider maybe how men look at it differently than women. Because I think that we as um, genders, we need to understand the opposite sex. We need to understand our spouses in a way that helps us understand how to better satisfy and fulfill them in the marriage relationship. So the first part of that physical relationship that I want us to look at is, is, is the physical aspect, and that is that men thrive in the physical. Men thrive in that part of the relationship. Men need sex in order to feel love, okay? And, and women, you may not understand that, but that's how men are wired, that men need sex in order to feel love. Men see anything concerning the sexual relationship through their eyes. Kind of their eyes are the gatekeepers to their minds so, so, so that everything that appeals to them is going to come through their eyes. The evidence, really, of, of how men are wired that way is that in the perversion of sex, men are usually addicted to things that they look at. I mean, if you think about the onset of pornography and um, Internet porn, I, I heard a sermon the other day that uh, said, I think about 20% of all the broadband width on planet Earth is consumed by pornography websites. That's how terrible, terrible of a tragic uh, addiction that it is that's plaguing our entire globe but it's playing to a man's God-given wiring to, to look through the eyes and to be, have an appeal through the eyes. And Satan is, is exploiting that to his advantage to try to make men fall. So men tend to be addicted to things that they can see. Men are usually factual and they're more of a problem solver. Now this kind of plays into the emotional aspect of women. Women thrive in the emotional area. Women have to feel love in order to have sex. Remember, men have sex to feel loved. Women must feel loved in order to have sex. Men have to take time to listen to their wives. 
You have to. And even though men are factual and problem solvers, we don't really see the need in a lot of extra fluff in our conversations. We just want to get to the point. We just want to fix the problem and then move on. Women are not like that. And here's the thing, men. Women do not tell you how they feel in order for you to fix their problems. All they want you to do is understand how they feel. So, so your response when you're having a conversation with your wife and she's explaining how she feels is, is um, I'm sorry you feel that way, honey. I didn't realize you felt that way. You know, and, and you identify with how she's feeling, but do not try to fix her problems because she doesn't want that. She needs you to understand how she feels. And then when you begin to understand how she feels, then she opens up in the physical relationship. But you have to spend time to understand her feelings first. That's how God wired women. Men say, well, they're just complicated. Well, they just want to make things hard. No, God made them that way, and thank God he did. Thank God that everyone's not like us, or this whole world would be messed up. Thank God that God made women the way they are. You have to take time to listen. You have to take time to empathize. You have to take time to understand your wives. See, women see everything concerning the sexual relationship through their emotions. If your wife does not feel loved, if she, if she does not care, uh, feel cared for, if she, if she does not feel like she's important to you, then she is going to be more hesitant to open up in the physical relationship. So when the men are, are nurturing the woman's uh, makeup and how, she, how she's designed by God and the women are nurturing how God designed men, then what you have is a selfless commitment there in that relationship that allows the physical and the emotional aspects of the relationship to come together in a way that is absolutely beautiful, in a way that God intended it, in a way that God intended it. Just like in, the, in Genesis, we talked about how God said, uh, Adam was by himself and it wasn't good that he was alone. So he brought Eve to come to his side as, as his helper and as his, as his, um, as his mate. And, and we see that in that beautiful uh, relationship that they complemented each other. And that's what we have to do in marriage and in the physical relationship. We have to complement each other, which means we have to work at figuring out what makes the other person tick. We have to work at not always seeing things the way we naturally see them, but work to see things the way our spouse sees them. See, we talked about how men tend to be addicted to pornography because their eyes are kind of the gatekeepers to their mind. Well, women not so much. Yes, there is some of that, but women actually tend to be addicted to things more like soap operas or romance novels. Why is that? We say, oh, that's not, that's not bad, Ben, is it? Well, it is because a woman... If she is, is, is lusting after a relationship that she is viewing on a soap opera, or if she's reading in a romance novel this adulterous uh, affair that this woman is having with this man, and this is causing uh, the woman to feel these emotions about this story, and there is this lust that takes part, that is the same as a man viewing pornography, because what that is is that's a lust of the heart that is arousing these folks in a way that is ungodly and only meant to be in the marriage relationship. So that just kind of shows you that how men and women are wired differently and how we have to work in this selfless commitment called marriage to understand each other more. Women are emotional and they have to share their feelings, men. And you have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to put your phone down, turn the TV off, look them in the eye, and understand how they feel. So then the next part of this is the spiritual aspect of the selfless commitment called marriage. That this 
relationship must be selfless in the spiritual realm. And we find that in verses 10 through 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verses 10 through 12, the Bible says this, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So what does that mean exactly? Well, here in the Corinthian church, you had a lot of new converts. You had some folks who, because it was very acceptable, acceptable in that pagan culture, had already divorced their spouses sometime before. You had some who may have been in the midst of a divorce when they accepted Christ. So here they've got a lot of questions. They've got a lot of questions about, well, what happens in the spiritual realm when someone gets saved and their spouse does not? Now you've got a marriage of an unsaved and a saved person. Well, how does that work? Well, just to put it in, in I guess, terms where we can understand, marriage was viewed so uh carelessly, I guess, in this culture, that it was not uncommon to find people who had been divorced and remarried upwards of 20 times in a lifetime. You know, you think two, three, four, five marriages um, is a lot. Well, back then, upwards of 20. So that's the view of this pagan culture that these Corinthians were living in. So Paul begins to deal with them about how to address these situations. And here he gives this command in verse 10. He says, the Lord gives this command, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, maybe that that's already happened, or maybe that she's in the process of that, she must remain unmarried. So in other words, that she is not at liberty to remarry, that she needs to come back to her husband. Now, we know that there are a few concessions in Scripture about that. We know that adultery is one of those, that that is one of those acceptable means to be divorced. And we also know that desertion is, is basically when someone leaves a spouse and that person is, is not saved, which we'll get into in just a moment. But in a sense of just... You know, just leaving your spouse saying, I'm done with you, I'm not in love with you, blah, blah, blah. That is not acceptable in God's word in any shape, form, or fashion. And if you have done that, and he's talking about these Corinthians, if they had done that, he says, then you are not permitted to remarry. You, if you, if you want to do anything, you've got to go reconcile back to your spouse. Because in God's eyes, you're still married. So here he's trying to address some of these issues. And divorce, understanding, is, is a reality in our, our society in America. It is an absolute reality. You don't have to look very far to find someone who's been divorced or someone who's affected by divorce. And today I want to be very careful. If you're sitting out there today and you have been divorced, I don't want you to beat yourself up and I don't want you to feel shame and I don't want you to feel guilt because I don't know your circumstances. I've not walked in your shoes. But what I want to encourage folks to do is those of you who are married, those of you who are looking to be married, those of you who are in that marriage relationship, you need to understand that God's desire for your marriage is that it will last until the day you die. And you can do that through His help, and you can just not do it, but you can do it with joy, and you can do it with peace, and have a true romance with your spouse. So Paul was urging reconciliation here. Today I urge that to each and every one of you. Verses 12 through 16 begins to talk about some new converts who begin to ask questions about, okay, so I just got saved, but my husband is a pagan. I just got saved. My husband is sacrificing to idols. What do I do? And these are legitimate questions coming from Christians. Now, we have to understand that this particular subject had never been dealt with before in the Bible. Yes, Jesus dealt with divorce. Yes, Moses even dealt with divorce and other aspects, but never in this sense, never in the sense of midstream in life, I've, I've become a Christian and now I find myself married to a lost person. That's never been dealt with before. And as Paul is trying to explain this, 
He says this in verse 12, but I, not the Lord, say this. And he's not saying that God doesn't agree with him. What he's saying is, is that this is the first time that this particular subject has been addressed in Scripture. So he's wanting everyone to understand that this is a, really a new thing, a new understanding because of the nature of the Christian relationship. Because, see, the Old Testament Jews, they were born into Judaism. They were born into the Hebrew culture and were raised up in it. Well, now, because Christianity is a heart change and people come uh, get saved based upon faith, some people get saved at 30 years old, 40 or 50, and they've lived a life before they got saved. And, and so there's going to be some baggage that they bring into their salvation experience that now they're going to have to know how to deal with that. And that's why Paul is saying, uh, I, not the Lord, say to the rest, because he's just saying that this is really a new uh, issue that's being dealt with in Scripture. So we see a selflessness for the benefit of the lost spouse. So did you hear what he said there in verse 13? Let's go back and read that again. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So here we have this idea that God is saying, listen, if you are a Christian... You get saved and you are married to a lost person. You are commanded to stay with them. Why? Did you hear what it said? It said that the wife is made holy by the husband and the husband is made holy by the wife. What does that mean? Does that mean that if a lost person is married to a Christian that they're automatically saved? No. What that means is, is that now you're saved, your spouse is still lost, you are now living an example of Christ in front of your spouse that is going to work on their heart, that is going to soften their heart. You have an opportunity like no one else to live Jesus in front of your spouse each and every day. And what the scripture is saying there is that that unbelieving spouse has a better chance than anybody of getting saved because you are right there with them and you are sharing the gospel with them in the way you live, in the way you speak, in the way you love them in that relationship. It even talks about the children. That if basically if you have two parents who are both lost and you have children that are growing up, their chances of knowing Christ in the ways of Scripture and the Bible are very slim. But if there is one spouse that knows Jesus, that elevates the chances of children growing up and knowing Jesus and getting saved exponentially. And that's really what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, yes, you may feel alone in the marriage relationship. You may be a Christian, your spouse is not. But God has called you into that relationship for such a time as this that you might win your spouse and that you might be a disciple maker of your children. Then it goes down to verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. So here we have another concession to divorce in that if one spouse is married or one spouse is saved and the other is not and the lost spouse leaves, which is what we call desertion, then that person is freed from that marriage. The, the, the Christian, the saved person is freed from that marriage. So when you think about divorce, there's really a very narrow, narrow group of concessions there that allow for divorce. It's always the exception and should never be the norm. And we don't ever need to look at it as an exception. We don't ever need to try to find loopholes in the Bible. Because if you're living that selfless commitment, like we've been talking about in the marriage relationship, then you are going to lay yourself on the line for your spouse. I mean, think about what Jesus did when he died for us on the cross. He laid his own body on the altar. It was beaten and bruised and, and desecrated. He was shamed for us. 
but he did it because he had a selfless love for us. And the Bible teaches us that our marriage should reflect Jesus's selfless love. You know, I was talking about one of the spouses being a Christian and how it affects the children. A young lady once told the story of her grandmother. Her grandmother was the only Christian in the entire family. Now think about how lonely that may have been. The grandmother was always careful to share Christ and his love with the family. Eventually, three of the four grandchildren came to know Christ. You know what those children said? They affirmed that their grandmother had the greatest influence in their decision to follow Jesus. Now, if that grandmother, that sole Christian in that family had not been there, what would the likelihood of those three grandchildren getting saved be? God used that grandmother. And I'm telling you today, if you are married to a lost person, God's going to use you. God can use you and he will use you not only to influence your spouse, but to influence your children and your grandchildren. So here's a question for you, and I want you to be honest. How have you been selfless to your spouse lately? Have you even been selfless? Can you remember the last time you were selfless? All for the purpose that they would benefit spiritually. See, God forbid that I stand in my wife's way in her relationship with Jesus. God forbid that I cause her anger or bitterness that would pull her away from studying the scripture or for praying, from praying. God forbid that I would be that stumbling block. You know what we need to be as spouses? We need to be fanning the flame of our spouse's spiritual relationship. We need to be encouraging them. We need to be giving them time to spend with Jesus. We need to be taking care of them in a way that they can have quality time with the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and in reading the Bible. Wives, are you aiding your husband in his spiritual growth? Husbands, are you aiding your wives? Are you making it easy for them to be able to go to Bible studies? Are you making it easy for them to be able to go to church? Are you making it easy for them to hang around their Christian friends? I think that's some good questions to ask. I'm sure you've all heard of Jonathan Edwards. He was a famous 18th century preacher and theologian, and he lived during the time of the First Great Awakening leading up to the American Revolution. Jonathan Edwards left a legacy that was unmatched. When you trace 1,400 of his descendants, I want you to listen to this. When you trace 1,400 of his descendants, you'll find 100 lawyers, 66 doctors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 3 senators, 3 governors, one vice president, 25 officers in the Army and the Navy, and many other pastors and missionaries. Wow, what a legacy. First thing you think about is how all of this was because he was a preacher and was dedicated to his ministry. That's what you're going to think. Oh, well, that just happened because he was a great preacher and he was super dedicated to his ministry, right? Wrong. If you study Jonathan Edwards, you'll find that's only partly correct. His ministry was his preaching ministry. But when you think about it, he considered his family, when you read any of the documents about his biography, read anything about him, he considered his family and primarily his wife his most important ministry. So see, in Jonathan Edwards' eyes, it wasn't his preaching that was the most important. It wasn't even his children. His most important ministry was his wife. He spent significant time with her as they cultivated their marriage relationship. There were many preachers in that day who neglected their wives. They would go out and they would travel for months at a time preaching and leave their wives at home by themselves. 
John Wesley and George Whitfield were two of those who did neglect their wives. Even though they had wonderful ministries, behind the scenes, their families were neglected. But John Edwards was not like that. Yet God still did amazing things in his Christian ministry. You know why? Because he had his focus where it needed to be, on that selfless commitment. You know, many times we want to pull in our careers and we want to pull in all these things because we feel like it's a necessity. And we feel like if we don't pour our heart and soul into our careers that they're not going to be successful. But I would actually argue that if you pour your heart and soul into your careers, they're going to be less successful because you're going to alienate your wife and your children. You're going to alienate that one person that God has given you in the most important human relationship, and it is going to lead to your demise and your destruction. I want to encourage you all, whether you're a female or a male, husband or a wife, you need to pour your heart and soul into your wife, into your husband. Your career comes third or fourth. Your wife comes second only to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is truly a selfless commitment. As we just talked about the physical and the emotional aspects of marriage, Listen, it is important that we understand that we are not our own in the marriage relationship, that my body is not my own, my wife's body is not her own, that we are one flesh and we are put here to aid and complement each other, to love each other, to act selflessly in how we can provide for the other. We think about the spiritual aspect of the relationship of marriage and how that has to be selfless, in that God has called saved men and women to stay married to their lost husbands and wives for the benefit of their salvation, for the benefit of your children. That we, our family, that our husbands and wives and children may be better Christians because we are in their lives, that we would never stand in their way. Today, church, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to hold fast this selfless commitment called marriage. And I want you to give of yourself wholly to your spouse. I want you to enjoy your spouse. And I want you to live in this covenant relationship that God has given to you as a gift. As always, I just want to say thank you so much for worshiping with us today. I'm so glad that you listened to the sermon. As we continue through our series, Marriage in the 21st Century, we will continue next week with our next sermon. If today, maybe you said, Ben, I'm not saved. I've never accepted Jesus as my Savior. Today, you can trust in the Lord Jesus. The Bible teaches us, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again so that your sins could be forgiven. And today, all you have to do is look to him and say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me. I know that you are the Son of God. And on the authority of God's Word, he'll save you. Maybe you, want, you have some questions about salvation. Maybe you've never been baptized and you want to know what that means. All you got to do is text the word SAVED to the phone number 828-373-1940, and that is the word SAVED. Today, maybe you want to get more involved in our church, or you want to know what it means to join. Or maybe you would like to connect to a small group, which is so important to fellowship with other believers. We'd love to get you connected and get you uh, dialed in here at Pole Creek. All you have to do is text the word CONNECT to the phone number 828-373-1940. Fill out some information, we'll contact you, and we'll get you connected to a group that you can thrive in and that you can grow in. I also just want to take time to thank our church family. Because of your faithfulness, we're able to continue in our ministries. We're able to continue to share the gospel. That our church right now is involved in a lunch bag program where we're able to feed children and share the gospel. And we are just so thankful that God continues to give these opportunities and we're able to have the resources because you are faithful to give. Don't forget, you can still give securely on our website by going to our menu and clicking on Give. 
Again, I want to say thank you. I'm going to dismiss us in prayer. I hope you have a great, great afternoon. Dear God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for marriage, God, that you have created us to enjoy this selfless commitment between one man and one woman. God, that the best person for us is our spouse, that there is no greater man or woman for any of us than the one you've given to us in marriage. So, Lord, help us to conduct ourselves this week in a way where we ask ourselves, how can I make my spouse's day better? Lord, help us to love them. Help us to draw close to them. Help us to point them to you. And Lord, we entrust the marriages of our church and our community into your hands, praying, Lord, that you would protect them and keep them from evil. God, we love you, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen.